While the deep midwinter days of January feel like a moment for retreat, this is also a time of change. In human history, the winter solstice marked the coming of the sun and was a cause for celebration. From ancient Yule to the Iranian tradition of Yalda night, this time of year has been marked by an urge to light candles and come together. And so this episode of Confect Corner explores themes of light and darkness. We investigate the complex and fascinating history of eyeliner in the lives of men and women, from its role in ancient life to a modern-day beauty regime. We ponder the glittering legacy of disco in our modern wardrobes, and we head to Iceland to find out about how long, cold, dark winters and the sublime power of nature inspire modern musicians and storytellers on the island. And finally, our audio essay by writer Sophie Cecil muses on the ritual of lighting candles and argues the case for ambient lighting now and throughout the year. For me, January is a month that twinkles. As the winter solstice beckons, light becomes a focal point, a distraction, and a way of finding beauty in the dark afternoons ahead. This is Confect Corner, and I am your host, Sophie Grove. I like that you mentioned Nefertiti because I actually consider her to be the original beauty influencer. When her bust was discovered just over 100 years ago and then displayed in Germany, the public clamored to emulate her quote-unquote exotic looks and one way to do that was to use eyeliner because she had heavily lined eyes. Society has recovered from the Second World War, it's had the kind of social revolutions of the 60s and it ends up really really ready to have a massive party. The humble lit candle with its manifold sacred associations of religion, spirituality and ceremony distills my strictly secular insistence on daily ritual and transformation. Welcome to this episode of Confect Corner. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, in London. And as usual, I'm joined by Marcella Palak in Zurich and by Gillian Tobias here in the studio with me. Hello to you both. Hey, Sophie. Hey, greetings to you in Switzerland, Marcella. Thank you. Hello to you both in London. Well, it's our first episode of 2024. And what better way to start the new year than giving our listeners a bit of inspiration from our travels? Gillian, what do you have for us this month? Well, Paris again, but this really is worth looking into. It's called Modern Paris 1905 to 1925. It's the end of a trilogy of exhibitions that the Petit Palais put on about the history of art in the city of Paris. This one is an ode to fin de l'époque and the Roaring Twenties. It covers everything from art, fashion, photography, film, architecture. So it really is a scan of that really seismic shift of the turn of the century in Paris, where there's a cauldron of creativity. And if you love the city as much as I do in Paris, it is quite dreamy to sort of scratch the surface and you're in Montmartre and you're in Montparnasse and you're with Diaghilev on the stage of the theatre and you realise how heady it must have been to be in Paris at that time as part of the creative circle. The fashion in particular I found quite riveting. You just see 1906, the corset disappears, and then with that fashion changes and women get more liberated, not just in their body, but in their spirit. You see the long vin bottles and this sort of 
Art Nouveau designs that were very strong and bold and again for women. So it's quite sensual, it's quite dreamy, very thought-provoking and very smartly curated. And I think when one is in a city, it's always very special to then see an exhibition that touches on the city itself and its artistic soul. And it's interesting that Paris was really defined as a city in those years. The fin de siècle is kind of a small window. Mm. But even at the amazing V&A exhibition, which is a biopic of Coco Chanel, Gabrielle Chanel, you see that the designs that were first created, for instance, Chanel Number no. 5, are the same. And they are like a crystallisation of that era and haven't changed even really very much at all. So it's funny how the city we know today was kind of forged in that era. Marcella, what caught your eye this month? Actually, I saw a nice exhibition at the Museum für Gestaltung in Zurich, matching quite well to your period of time in Paris. It shows the life and work of the Swiss ceramist Marguerite Link. She was the first woman actually in Switzerland to open a pottery business in the 1930s. Even today her simple, geometric, uh, minimalist shapes have a modern appeal and are still being produced and very popular at uh, cool people. (laughs) The exhibition shows an atelier moment, sketches, photos, films, interview and makes the pioneer very, very present. I mean, it's 100 years later and Link is very, very inspiring. I love the one sentence she said, the joy of making gives me energy. If a piece is not successful, I simply smash it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I mean, she's got this incredible, the pieces are so insanely beautiful and so simple. We did a piece in Confect last year or the year before, which was her great-granddaughter, really, who's taken on the business. So they're still producing, which is really remarkable. Indeed. She continues the spirit of Margaret Link and does really these beautiful pieces on and on. And they are really beautiful. So, for example, the Jill Sanders store in Zurich has one in the windows and uh, just the nice places, hotels, restaurants who are having her beautiful vases and lamps. She reminds me of a kind of Barbara Hepworth, kind of amazing independent woman in that era where it was quite rare to be an artist or a potter owning your own studio and forging your own ideas. But it's really wonderful to hear about her spirit and her like destructive creativity. (laughs) I wonder if the granddaughter also smashes pieces that she's not 100% happy with. And you, Sophie, what do you have for us? Well, I mean, I've also been in Paris, but I've also been renovating my London house for the past few months. I can't believe I haven't been talking about it more on this show, really. (laughs) I'm at the end of quite a long process, and it's a previously very derelict Georgian house. But I'm furnishing it, and I've found this wonderful way of kind of collecting interesting pieces to suit the house through auctions in mainly London and Britain at the moment. But I think auctions are so exciting and interesting. There's this element of tension and anticipation and drama around the big event and just this wonderful moment that you all wait for and then it feels like fate would have it that you get the piece or not. So I've bought some very lovely mirrors and other things but then most recently I bought myself a 1950s cocktail cabinet which is currently in Yorkshire (laughs) and needs to be delivered somehow down to London. But I think it's just that wonderful moment of falling in love with something and then having to really fight for it, which I think is really a fun way to furnish your house. 
And then there's that joy when you live with it because you kind of feel that sort of satisfaction and the joy that you want it. And it just gives so much pleasure. And I'm very envious of your cocktail cabinet. I've always wanted one. <laughs> well, I used to go to auctions in Paris, the Drouot auction house is really the kind of heart of a district in the very centre of Paris. And it was really difficult for my very early days of learning French because the numbers came hard and fast. <laughs> I found myself like waving the paddle, not quite knowing <laughs> what I was doing. So I was happy to be on page with what was actually the bidding process this time. I hope you realise the difference between like thousands and millions. <laughs> I think I did. <laughs> If there is one beauty trend that has stood the test of time, it's surely eyeliner. From the Queen of Egypt, Nefertiti, to the Instagram influencers of today, the application of coal or its various other versions that exist around the world is a far-reaching and important ritual. But it's a ritual that's not just about enhancing one's beauty. A new book, Eyeliner, A Cultural History, explores not only the aesthetic, but also the medicinal, religious, spiritual and political significance of the product. The book's author, Zara Hankir, stopped by our studios to discuss all things eyeliner with Confex Sophie Monham Coons and began their interview with a reading from the book. Let's have a listen. The question of where eyeliner fits into one's persona is the driving force of these pages. To minorities and communities of colour, coal transcends aesthetics. It's about identity and one's sense of self, power and gender, spirituality and religiosity, sexuality and coming of age, rites of passage, rebellion and resistance, and the relationship between mothers and daughters. Coal is also a cause for celebration and pride, a tool laden with centuries of layered histories, of empires, queens and kings, poets, writers and nomads. Imagine that, carrying all that history in a little tube or pencil or pot that fits into pockets and purses. To wear eyeliner and learn about its origins is to bring not only ourselves, but also some of the world's most fascinating cultures into focus. We are here today to talk about your new book, Eyeliner, A Cultural History. Maybe first of all, you could just tell us a little bit about your own personal history and relationship with eyeliner and when you first discovered it and started using it. Sure. Um, it started when I was very young, actually, when we lived here in the UK. My parents had moved here from Lebanon during the Lebanese Civil War. And my mother used to be very overwhelmed constantly. She had six children. She was very busy. She constantly missed home. She was always on the move. And I used to feel like when she applied her eyeliner in the morning, that was really the only time where everything seemed to stand still. And it was her moment of self-care for the day. And obviously, as a young girl, I used to watch her do that and be in complete awe by just the fact that she was applying the eyeliner so steadily and then it really transformed the way that she looked. I was about, I think, 11 or 12 when I started doing this. And I realized even back then that there was something more to it. It wasn't just about her beautifying herself because she was using the traditional coal, which looks quite different to Western eyeliner. So that was when I first sort of felt like this was something that was special. And then I was about... 12 when a friend of mine applied eyeliner to my eyes for the first time and I felt like I could kind of see myself for the first time like I came into focus and that was the beginning of my eyeliner journey. 
<laughs> Amazing. <laughs> now you've written a whole book about it. I have, yeah. Which is a pretty bold undertaking. And I wonder kind of when you realised there was so much in the history and the uses and the culture of using eyeliner that it actually could make an entire book. Sure. So just following up on what I just said, I think the realisation that eyeliner or coal was a significant part of my history and my culture as someone who's Arab, that was the begin- the starting point because then I started doing a bit more research into why it plays such a major role in my culture and then I learned that eyeliner originated in ancient Egypt and I'm partly of Egyptian origin as well and I had this feeling that, okay, this is a culturally layered product that's not simply about beauty. It's about spirituality. It's about religion. It's about, it's used for medicinal purposes. It's about warding off the evil eye, but it's also about heritage and culture and identity. And that's why for me and my mother, it played a central part for us when we started to use eyeliner. And I felt like also I was connecting to my own ancestors because they had used eyeliner. So immediately I had that sense that, okay, this is central and profound in my own culture. Then I started to do research on other cultures in the global south. So in Iran, um, it is called sorme, and it is also made from natural materials in the same way that coal is. And then in South Asia, it's called kajal. Uh, it can be called surma as well. It has different names. Across Africa, it also has different names. But then I realized within those individual cultures, they each have very unique uses. But there's also a through line where, as I said, there's so much more to eyeliner than just the aesthetic. So as soon as I had that sort of basis for the research, I realized that there was something that could be explored in a way that would sort of take the form of a book rather than a magazine piece. Um, and of course, we know that eyeliner plays a central role as well in uh, in Western culture. You mentioned that Iran and you talk about how eyeliner can be used as a kind of tool resistance for women in places like Iran and you really go into detail about the protests after the death of Masa Amini. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about the role of eyeliner in, in that particular resistance movement. So in 1979, the Islamic Revolution officially banned cosmetics for women. And of course, they um, were expected to wear the hijab and their bodies have since then been policed. So because there is sort of limited landscape for them to express themselves physically, the face takes on outsized meaning. And therefore, the, the makeup that they use is very intentional, right? And even though cosmetics were officially banned, women started to use cosmetics to express themselves and sometimes to rebel against the restrictions that were placed upon them. So the tools they might have used would have been lipstick, nail polish and eyeliner. And what I think is that it shows, it's sort of testament to their resourcefulness and their resilience because Iran actually today is one of the biggest consumers of cosmetics globally. It's second to Saudi Arabia and the Middle East, which is really interesting, even though cosmetics are officially banned. There's another element to this, though, which is that sorme, which is traditionally produced eyeliner, which has been historically used for centuries in in Iran and, and also in ancient Persia, is considered in many circles to be permissible because the Prophet Muhammad uh, was 
said to have worn eyeliner or a form of eyeliner and advised Muslims to wear it too to treat the eyes medicinally. So if eyeliner is worn in a very sort of subtle way, there's a fine line between that and then the use of liquid eyeliner to draw a distinct wing, for example. So that's quite a layered and, and quite an interesting case study. But I will say that especially today, given that women's bodies continue to be policed, the younger generation are really experimenting with eyeliner looks. So you see a lot of wings, you'll see sometimes graphic liner, and social media has helped with that as well. So there's there's so many different facets and elements to the use of eyeliner in Iran. And you mentioned their social media. One of the things that I really enjoyed about this book is that we go from ancient Egypt and um, Nefertiti all the way up to the present day and the role of influencers and the current state of at this makeup consumption at the moment. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you think in the modern day, how our relationship to eyeliner is changing, particularly, you know, as you mentioned, there's aesthetic, religious, spiritual, all these uses and meanings of it. Well, I would hope that people start to be a little bit more aware of the origins of eyeliner. I think for so long, in the West, it's it's not been recognized as an item of makeup that originated in the East. I like that you mentioned Nefertiti because I actually consider her to be the original beauty influencer. When her bust was discovered uh, just over 100 years ago and then displayed in Germany, um, the public clamored to emulate her quote-unquote exotic looks. And one way to do that was to use eyeliner because she had heavily lined eyes on the bust. So I think even though we've jumped ahead 100 years, people are still kind of evoking and emulating that look and Nefertiti's legacy. And the cat eye and the classic flick is, is, I think, it's not going anywhere. Zara Hankir there in conversation with Confex Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Eyeliner, A Cultural History, is available now and published by Harville Secker at Penguin Random House. From Jessie Ware to Dua Lipa, this festive season, most of us could be found dancing the night away to floor fillers heavily influenced by the disco music of the 1970s and 80s. And for maximum hip swishing, our attire followed suit. From sequin boob tubes to lettuce-hemmed wrap dresses, the clothing of the time was geared towards outfits you could move and groove in, as well as bold colours and metallics that would catch the light in clubs like New York's Notorious Studio 54. So who were the designers pioneering silhouettes and sewing techniques that still grace our dance floors today? And what do we know about the cultural context in which the style evolved? Confex Paige Reynolds speaks with fashion historian Dr. Bethan Bide to find out more. Find me under the lights, diamonds under my eyes. The first few lines from Dua Lipa's standout Barbie soundtrack hit, Dance the Night, and the two minutes, 50 seconds that follow are disco pop perfection. Alongside artists like Jessie Ware and Roisin Murphy, 21st century disco queens are reviving our love of soulful, four-to-the-floor tunes and with it, the sequined outfits they perform in. So where did this flamboyant collision of fashion and music all begin? And is there one designer in particular who led the way? Bethan Bide is a design historian and lecturer at the University of Leeds, where she focuses on the cultural histories of fashion as well as the development of fashion cities. 
She starts by telling me it's no fluke that disco styles are making a comeback. I think it's interesting that we're seeing a revival now because obviously during COVID we all sort of hunker down in our sweats. And I think that's a really interesting mirror because disco fashions actually come out of the really long American tradition of sportswear fashions. Sportswear in, you know, the 1950s and 1960s is not how we would imagine sportswear today. We are not talking kind of tracksuits, but American fashion designers really pushed back against what was going on in other fashion centres like London and like Paris, which was much more about kind of structured, tailored clothing. And from the 30s onwards, New York fashion designers were saying, look, fashion should be more comfortable to wear. It should be easier to wear. They are using fabrics like jersey. They're using these kind of soft, stretchy fabrics that allow a bit more movement, allow a bit more comfort. And disco fashion grows out of that, which I know sounds weird, doesn't it? The idea that kind of disco fashion grows out of actually providing like comfortable dresses for housewives. But it's an evolution of that same thing, which is saying, well, we've got these kind of fantastic new lightweight stretchy fabrics that are being developed so things like lycra and spandex which are revolutionary and super exciting because they allow us to do stuff we've never been able to do before we can make these kind of very body conscious form-fitting clothes we can like manipulate the fabric in a really interesting way we can dye it these crazy bright colors there's this real focus on emphasizing the body and how the body moves so you end up with designers like Halston coming out and they're using bias cuts which is where you cut along the bias grain of a fabric so it's much more stretchy and it kind of hangs and drapes around the body so there's this real emphasis on the bodies underneath the clothes and of course if you're thinking about dancing seeing bodies move is so exciting so disco fashions are this kind of amazing coming together I think of like technology and social change society has recovered from the second world war it's had the kind of social revolutions of the 60s and it ends up really really ready to have a massive party. The dance floor ready styles that were gaining popularity in the early 1970s were ushered in by young New York designers in sharp relief to the quiet luxury of long-standing fashion capitals such as Paris. And there was one designer in particular whose love of dance and use of colour catapulted him to the forefront of the scene. I do actually think that Stephen Burroughs was probably one of the most exciting designers to emerge at this time. He's got this sort of Trinidadian American father. He's got this African-American mother. So he's bringing this set of colourful cultural backgrounds with him into his designs. And he's also the perfect person in this moment because he's got this real love of dancing. So there's a great story about his grandmother sending him off to have dance lessons because she recognised he was a great mover And his grandmother also being the person who encouraged him with sewing and particularly encouraged him to love the zigzag stitch. So if you look at a lot of Stephen Burroughs clothes, you've got those fantastic, big, exaggerated zigzag stitches, which are kind of the antithesis to what high fashion's always done, which is hiding the stitching. And he's like, no, let's show it off. He represents this, I think, a sort of a new wave of American fashion design in the world. So... Stephen Burroughs gets known for his very bright, very colourful designs. He gets picked up by Henry Bendel, which is a big luxury department store in New York. And this is a massive, massive moment for him. But it leads to another massive moment that I think really exemplifies that idea about the snobbishness of established fashion versus these new designers coming through. 
And that is it leads him to be invited to probably the best fashion event of the 1970s, which is in 1973, the Battle of Versailles. So this is where you have a group of American fashion designers who have this kind of fashion off against a group of Parisian fashion designers in the Palace of Versailles. So in the kind of one of the most iconic buildings in the world. And it's set up by the kind of French fashion councils and the American fashion councils. But it's very clear that the French fashion councils agree to it because they think they're going to show up and be like, look, we're going to prove the supremacy of French fashion. We have been the global elite for centuries. And then these new upstart American designers arrive and they kind of really rip up the rule book. So Stephen Burroughs shows up with his sort of very bright, bold designs that are in all of these different mismatching colours and patterns, sort of, again, the French don't really know what to do with this. But Stephen Burroughs also shows up and insists that they have black models. So again, just totally different, really kind of shifting the landscape. And there is a real shock in France. But it's a shock that comes from perhaps realising that actually there's something to this new movement of young American designers who come from these kind of more diverse cultural backgrounds, who have all these influences, who are bringing pop culture into fashion. To really grasp what significance this event had for American fashion, you might want to turn to the documentary of the same name. But in the interim, here's Burroughs talking about the pivotal Battle of Versailles in an interview in 2013. It was a lot of hard work and we made out very well. <laughs> oh, I'd say that's an understatement. That it still resonates today is just amazing to me. Yeah. Because at the time, it was not like this big thing. It yeah. was hardly noticed in the American press at all. Um, and of course the French were embarrassed so they didn't talk about it too much. But it was a great moment for all the Americans. It, it was... Uh, that's they truly terrific. They screamed and yelled and stomped on the floor and threw their programs up in the air and stood up and... What it did you do? amazing. I thought something had gone wrong. <laughs> Before that? <laughs> because they were screaming. Uh, it was... It was a thrilling moment. And speaking of pop culture, the birth of disco also coincided with a new celebrity culture, one that shimmied in and out of venues like New York's iconic Studio 54 and provided another kind of catwalk for designers like Burroughs. The major actors of the day, singers of the day, are wearing these clothes and going to those iconic venues. And they're being photographed in these iconic venues because let's be honest, that's kind of what matters, right? You have people like Barbara Streisand and Cher and Diana Ross are being photographed in Stephen Burroughs and Halston and Diane von Furstenberg in these iconic venues. And that is driving demand. So that really is a tipping point for publications like Vogue, who maybe haven't featured these designers before, to say, well, look, we've got to get on board because the kind of growing cult of celebrity in the 70s matters. You know, this is a moment where who gets to set fashion shifts and it shifts away from perhaps people with lots of money or in the UK, the kind of aristocracy, and it shifts towards the power of celebs. It's a very kind of organic thing that it isn't perhaps what we might imagine today, that kind of staid, slightly forced influencer thing. Actually, 
these celebs love these clothes, they're buying them and wearing them anyway, and this is how these relationships evolve. Within the discotheques of Studio 54 and beyond also came a new, more democratic attitude to public spaces and new interiors that the styles of the time also catered to. The overriding impression is that disco was about fun, flamboyance and, importantly, inclusivity. So if you look at the kind of clothes that are being designed, they're not only being designed to move well, they're being designed to show off the light. So think about what a disco is. It is dark, you have disco lights. So you see these kind of psychedelic patterns, which, if you have strobe lighting or something like that, look amazing. You see things like fringing and beading and sequins, which are all going to catch that light. They're going to move in a really interesting way through the light if it's dark. They're going to cast kind of great shadows. So the materials that are being used are reflective of the space. So there's this real kind of coming together of the arts, the music, the fashion, to create a vibe, to create an environment. And it's all kind of pushing each other. You know, again, we think about what fashion 20 years before that had been kind of, you know, Christian Dior is dressing Princess Margaret. You can't go out and see these people wearing these clothes, but actually you can go to the disco, you can go to Studio 54 if you're cool enough to get in. You know, there's no other barrier than do you look right, can you get in? And you can see these people wearing these clothes, you can be part of that scene yourself. So there's this kind of breaking down of barriers in that urban space where you can be a part of it as well. But, as Bethan notes, its stylistic legacy is often misremembered. I think that there are certain things that people really associate with disco, so particularly things like the platform boots, flares, halter neck tops, that actually I would say aren't really disco trends. They are kind of trends that disco borrowed from earlier trends, so like halter neck tops were really something that hippies were doing, platform shoes, you know, Venice was doing that in the 16th century. These are kind of borrowed ideas. But there are things that actually I think were really innovative that maybe we don't remember so much. So the jersey wrap dress, which is such a wardrobe staple, particularly for like middle-aged women, actually was crazily innovative and was really, really important in terms of disco. So it was a very, very new style and disco was really what popularised it. And it was a great style because if you were a kind of young office worker working in Manhattan, you could just about get away with wearing a jersey dress to work and then change into your party shoes and go straight out to dance. That is a massive cultural shift and that happens with disco and that happens with the wrap dress. But I think disco also gave the world permission to have a bit of fun and that fun wasn't just for really rich people. So, you know, if we think about kind of flamboyant evening clothes up until the 1970s, Really, they were very expensive and they were for people who could go to the opera or could go to kind of very posh nightclubs. So places like Annabelle's in London, which opens in the 60s. But disco, and particularly disco in New York, is for everybody. It's if you look right, you can get in. You don't have to be super wealthy. You don't have to be super well connected. And I think that maybe that's something else that it gave us is that kind of permission that everybody, no matter who you are or what job you do, deserves to be able to get dressed up like a crazy person and go out dancing. For Confect in London and ready to don my sequins for New Year's Eve, I'm Paige Reynolds. That was Dr Bethan Bide in an interview by Confect's Paige Reynolds. Marcella, are you a fan of disco fashion and do you borrow fashion inspiration from that period? 
What do you think, Sophie? <laughs> no, of, co of course. I think every fashion period has its qualities. It's just about recognizing them and putting them into a new context, into a new styling. So I would wear a shiny metallic top. It can make an outfit exciting again. And I am wearing actually a big belt, which I discovered that brings a bit allure to an overall I have. So, yeah, of course. And it's fun to browse vintage stores for such pieces. But I love the way you always update any vintage piece, make it look like it's kind of new, which is really a very good skill of yours, Marcella. How about you, Sophie? Are there any particular items that you'd still wear today? I love overalls. So I have some really nice pieces that I've got this one kind of peach coloured overall from the 80s, which is so comfortable and so chic and you can just jump into it and just run out of the house. It's more summer. But in the winter, I also love a kind of one piece, just really easy, simple party solutions. I'm like you, I don't want to ever feel that I'm completely vintage. I feel like I want to mix and match and adapt my wardrobe so the pieces feel like they're really truly mine it's not like a kind of homage <laughs> it's not like a kind of remaking in one of those wonderful period dramas <laughs> I feel like I, you have to bring things into the current day Gillian what is it about the style of the 1780s that is still so evocative to us today well it's funny because growing up I just would look at films from the 70s and I think what were they thinking and how could anyone dress like that? I suppose as time goes on and especially for me when I look back at the photography of places like Studio 54 and it was the attitude and I became quite envious of that attitude and I think seeing the way they put things together it just really made me want to be more daring because that makes me think I'm so conservative in my look but I think it's really I've been inspired by the photographs of places that really were in themselves theatre but it was the spirit of how they lived which was their fashion. Yeah, and you can imagine, I wonder, like, you know, Bianca Jagger, the way she dressed was very much of the moment. But also she was drawing on vintage from the 20s yeah. or there was this wonderful sense of creativity, which I think is an amazing thing to have. But it is more philosophy than yeah. a style. So I think that's the really interesting thing about that era. artistic creation is influenced by the context where it happens. But in a place like Iceland, where awe-inspiring landscapes are everywhere, nature plays an outsized role in creative inspiration. Over the centuries, the nation's stark but fascinating outdoors, particularly during the tough winters, has led its inhabitants to cope with this environment's challenges with folk stories and legends. Today, a storytelling spirit remains in many of the island nation's artists. These almost surreal surroundings have also encouraged an experimental streak in many of them, and Iceland's literary art and music scene is all the better as a result. Comfex deputy editor Chiara Rumella decided to hit the trails with Icelandic musician Jofrida Akadotir, a.k.a. JFDR, to find out more about her relationship between nature and creativity. The 
Plenty of creatives say that they are inspired by time spent in nature, but the relationship that Icelanders have with their surroundings is more complicated than that. The nation's stark landscape is bewitching. It often transports people to a state of connectedness to deep time and profound meaning. But it can also become a hostile place to be, particularly in winter, when the long, dark days leave very little time for sunlight. This double-edged relationship means that for many Icelandic artists, creativity is both something that is made possible by the headspace a place like this affords, but it's also almost a necessity, a matter of artistic sustenance in the face of adversity. On a walk to the natural thermal hot springs of Reykjadalur, musician Jofridur Akadottir and I tried to untangle all of these contradictions. The strain of the steep ascent and the howling wind on our hike should give you a good indication of how impactful nature is here at all times. Though for Akadottir, the ocean is the most awe-inspiring, intimidating and fascinating element of all. After all, for Icelanders, it's the source of plentiful fish which has propped up its economy for centuries, but its treacherous waves have also gobbled up many ships. When I look at that, I feel like, yeah, you have to respect it. And I think Icelandic people have had this relationship with the ocean. It's given a lot and it's taken a lot Yeah, at the same time. Perhaps it's because of this that Iceland has developed a florid tradition of folk stories filled with elves, trolls and supernatural beings. These were ways for people to explain a nature that they could not comprehend and that felt powerful and incontrollable. Volcanoes and geothermal activities have shaped this land and could destroy it at any time, but they are also what sustains it through the warmth and comfort of its hot waters. As we reached closer to the springs, Akadottir started reflecting on the role and purpose of Iceland's storytelling tradition. I certainly believe that it is all alive. And I do feel like a lot of my personal beliefs are quite close to the sort of animism beliefs that a lot of people have been coming back to. There's a lot of this kind of give and take. You know, you give to... For many external onlookers, the idea that some Icelanders have an almost agnostic relationship with whether elves actually exist may seem amusing, but this willingness to go beyond hard rationality is, once again, not so simple. Not only is it a matter of heritage and connection to a rural past, but it's almost inevitable when you're surrounded by a context as striking and elemental as this. No, I do think everything is alive, and I do think that there's more than meets the eye. Kind of thing. Stories are so, so much about, like, they can be about just passing the time, really. They can also be about passing on knowledge and, yeah. like, passing on traditions and warning. You know, they can be warning tales. But yeah, in Iceland. Entertainment is the word is skip that we just like to, to shorten. Yeah. So it does have directly this sort of meaning within it that the time feels a lot quicker when you're having fun. Of course, all of this ends up impacting contemporary creativity too, though in the case of Akadottir, the influence from traditional modes of expression is not so literal. Her music, particularly her latest album Museum, speaks volumes through its ethereal soundscapes alone. Still, she explained to me why the history of Icelandic music is also fundamentally about stories. The music that we have in our very core tradition that's very unique to Iceland is more like chanting. So it is like kind of borderline music even. It's really yeah. about the 
poetry and the, the structure, like it's kind of orthodox in certain ways, like how you use the language. That's actually in our sort of psyche, there's a lot more of that rather than using tones and, and using uh, instruments. Like there's hardly any instruments from Iceland. So at the core of it is the story and at the core of it is passing the time. Time with Akadotir passed so quickly that just after this, we got to the springs, donned our costumes and dipped our bodies into the warm water. The effect was nothing short of magical. Definitely something to keep telling stories about. For Confect in Iceland, I am Chiara Rimella. A report there by Confect's deputy editor, Chiara Ramella. You're listening to Confect Corner. The irresistible allure of candlelight isn't just for the festive period. It improves every situation, bringing romance to less-than-perfect surroundings and joy to doubtful dinner parties. Sophie Cecil is a writer and consultant for luxury fashion and fragrance brands, and she brought us this month's illuminating final thought. It started with my most glamorous aunt, a former Playboy bunny, whose semi-subterranean North London flat glowed with candlelight every evening. As a teenager, stumbling into adulthood's fearful assembly of secrets and sophistications, I would make pilgrimages to visit her, to make my confessions and to receive welcome instruction. Crossing the rain-slicked winter streets at dusk, I'd see the dancing light of a candle set invitingly on her windowsill, held by a burnished brass holder tied at the base with a yellow satin ribbon. It was a golden beacon beckoning me into a twinkling world of Brahms and Bruy and gossip. There started my lifelong love of candles and my daily devotion to their soul-soothing glow. As I've trooped gladly on into the freedoms of maturity, I've become increasingly insistent about soft ambient lighting in general, stubbornly flicking the switch off on anything artificial above head height. At the risk of sounding a touch Blanche Dubois, Tennessee Williams' anti-heroine in a streetcar named Desire, I've also been known to paint overly harsh light bulbs with pale pink nail varnish to bring the Kelvin count closer to a candle's flesh-loving incandescence. But back to my true love, the simple candle. And I'm here to argue that this is a pleasure that can and should be simple, rather than the more voluptuous indulgence of expensively scented candles. It was through the tumult of my years at university that my mere fancying of candlelight became a true commitment. Every rented Bloomsbury interior, no matter how depressingly furnished, could be made homely and even sensuous with the lighting of a few taper candles. Any disparate rabble of fresh, unfamiliar faces could be brought together around a table, festooned with candles and my doubtful dinner party cuisine, drawn to the naked flames mesmerizing primeval allure. It was perhaps a symbol of hope for greater nourishment and more stable times ahead, like those concentric circles of street candles unifying the huddled masses in Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. Candles anchored us all as we communed, 
emotionally unmoored, speeding into a new era, a new city and a new life. Now, I'm still passionate about the daily lighting of candles as darkness encroaches, addicted to the point of dependence. And that's because of what candlelight does for my spirit, as much as what it does for my pernickety aesthetic sensibility. The humble lit candle, with its manifold sacred associations of religion, spirituality and ceremony, distills my strictly secular insistence on daily ritual and transformation, on constantly recalibrating my mood and my surroundings, on refusing that the everyday become mundane. It's about ushering in an extra nourishing layer of nostalgia and romance wherever you are, as simply as striking a match. However, certain inelegant efforts are required to feed this craving away from hearth and home. I always take sturdy glass candle holders and a couple of tapers with me on holiday, which my husband, who likes to pack light, deplores. Even the most sterile hotel rooms on work trips can be transformed with a box of matches and a carry-on sanctioned 60-gram travel candle. I confess to plundering corner shops in Rio de Janeiro to buy up devotional candles emblazoned with the Virgin Mary for transgressively lighting rainy evenings spent playing cards and drinking cachaça. I'm continually enchanted by candlelight's power to transform quotidian moments. For example, my good friend, who is Swiss, lights a candelabra to preside over the magnificent feasts she serves for weekend family breakfast. It's a gesture of joy that magnifies the coziness of her sheepskin rugs, creamy hot chocolate and warm toasty brioche. She tells me it's not strictly a cultural practice, but I can't help seeing in it the influence of her homeland. Why not recover from the spiritual dislocation of deep sleep in the same way you would a mad adrenaline fueled dash down snowy slopes? Candles are a delightful symbol of healing, gathering and togetherness, even in daylight. So while I believe there's no time of intimacy that isn't spiritually enhanced by candlelight, there is a season in which it is, of course, inextricably bound up, and that is Christmas. I have a box that comes out every December, clinking with practical and impractical receptacles for candles, a collection that is growing year on year. I'm obsessed with those kitsch white ceramic tea light holders in the shape of Amsterdam's canal houses, inspired by little bottles of Geneva given away on KLM business class flights. This takes me full circle to my aunt, who was not only a playboy bunny, but also a flight attendant, albeit on Concorde rather than KLM. That footnote might be totally coincidental, but it plays to my conviction the glittering light glimmering from those tiny windows emanates from a world of eternal whimsy and joy and it's everyone's right to switch into that mode whenever the mood takes them not just at christmas that was the writer and consultant sophie cecil 
Gillian, what is it about lighting that can instantly shift the mood in a room? Well, candle lighting is irresistible. I adore dinner parties that are candle lit. I love my candle lit bubble baths. It's a mixture of the quality of light, but it's also the movement of the light, that little flicker that's very hard to replicate other than in candlelight. I like it, of course, in sort of dark rooms that bring a warmth and an atmosphere. But I also adore it during the daytime. And I sort of discovered this when I went to Copenhagen, these beautiful contemporary cafes in the daylight and they'll have candles on the tables or if you go to a Danish I think also a Swedish wedding often during the day they'll have candles all during the day so there it's maybe not the candle light as much as a bit of that natural movement that brings a sort of warmth and a bit of humanity to the table oh my gosh you've got to get together with Sophie Sessler (laughs) (laughs) I think there's much discussion to be had the same thing when I read her essay (laughs) but I think it's really interesting that her essay explores the energetic nature, this idea of ritual. We often think of candlelight as being romantic and maybe even a tiny little bit too quaint, but actually it really focuses a room and it can provide the energy that just propels an evening. So I think that's really well explored in the piece. And Marcella, what about you? What's your go-to lighting setup for dinner parties? Is it candles or dimmed lights? Well, Christmas is over. (laughs) I'm talking more, more about all year long, so Actually, I can't live without dimmers. I think it's the best what's there in in sense of lightning because you can just dose it. You can just make the exactly right light for the right occasion, for your mood, for the event, whatever. When you're eating something very complicated at a dinner party, so you can push it to more light. When it's getting romantic, less light. So in short, I love dimmers. But dimmers and candles, or are you just a dimmer, dimmer girl? <laughs> of course, candles, but otherwise dimmers is a must, always. And uh, Sophie, does light impact your choice of venue? Would you go to a restaurant or not based on how it was lit, for example? I mean, absolutely. I mean, I have had to somehow give up some of my favourite restaurants when they've changed their light bulbs and I've even written to them (laughs) about it. I'm very light sensitive and it's not even just an aesthetic thing. I feel if it's overlit, I can't really lose myself and dream in a space and I feel virtually interrogated. So I think it's really wonderful. Even our studios, I mean, you don't get to see them because it's obviously audio, but they're really dim and it feels like a cave and we feel cosy and this changes my mood. I feel more myself. And if the lighting was different, I'm sure it would be probably just kind of a different mood altogether for the whole show. So this is how <laughs> sensitive we are here. <laughs> And that brings us to the end of this episode of Confect Corner. My thanks to Gillian Tobias and Marcella Palak, as ever. Confect Corner is produced and edited by Carlotta Ribello, Isabella Jewell and Christy O'Grady. We'll be back next month with more, but until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. Listener.